0: Psalm 139 this morning. So I'd invite you to do that. Grab your Bibles and Psalm 139, right in the middle, smack dab middle of the Bible. And uh, we're going to read it together. Pray for God to illuminate our hearts to understand it and uh, apply it to our lives. All right, Psalm 139. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. O Lord, we ask you to do your work here, the work that only you can do, to penetrate our hearts with your word by the power of your spirit for the glory of Christ. Help us to understand your word, to apply it to our lives, and to share it with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever I'm in an airplane looking out the window, I am drawn to worship. I don't know about you, but it's just amazing to see how huge the world is and how small I am. You've got deserts and mountains and cornfields and oceans and large cities, and that's only if the marshmallow clouds aren't hiding at all from view. The world is so glorious, and I am so small. And from way up there, you just forget about even seeing people. When, when you take off, they disappear as ants going about their business. So if this principle is true of seeing magnificent sights, how much more true is it at comprehending the God who made them all? When you take an honest assessment of who God is and who we are, the only right response, like David, is to be utterly overwhelmed. Because there's no comparison. For King David, he got this, as shown by Psalm 139. So this psalm appears in a cluster of psalms just crying out and taking refuge in God. He runs to the solace of who God is and who he is as God's child. And so this psalm, I want to point out, it's a lot of things, but two of the things that I want to point out is that this psalm is a poetic meditation on God's character and a worshipful response to his care. With our worship team, we often talk about this idea of of humility and confidence. And so whenever we serve, whenever we lead in some way, we, we, we do so out of humility for who God is. And we do so in the humility of Christ. And yet, as we even saw in the call to worship, we do so confidently because Christ is at work in and through us. And I think this psalm sets that up for every Christian. Meditating on God's character leads us to the first thing. It leads us to humility. God is so great. And yet, considering his loving care for us in light of his greatness, it leads us to confidence as his children. And so here in Psalm 139, David is very organized. Most of this psalm unpacks three ideas. God's loving knowledge, his guiding presence, and his creative care. We're going to unpack those three um, here to start out with. The rest of the psalm contrasts David's worshipful response with the wicked's blasphemous response. So let's look at just the first six verses again. I'm going to read them again. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. So, this first section shows God as the all knowing. There's simply nothing that God doesn't know. But what's interesting here is what is the focus of his knowledge in this psalm? It's directed at David. And David represents each one of us here, followers of the Lord, who have been given privilege of being his children. In this call of the psalm, it calls us to respond the way that David does. So if God knows our every move. He knows our every thought, every word before we speak it. He knows even the intentions and the affections of our heart better than we know it ourselves now how would you feel if the person next to you knew every thought that entered your mind what about every affection of your heart every intention of your heart in some ways that might be quite clarifying for the person next to you but and for you that would be very terrifying and a bit embarrassing because we know how much we fall short of god But yet before God, every one of us is an open book. But what's really interesting to me here is rather than sheepish embarrassment from David, the tone of this section is one of great comfort and security. I mean, that's the sense uh, of the phrase in verse 5 that says, you hem me in behind and before. For David, knowledge of all his ways is a humbling assurance. And he gets to it a few verses later, Later, if you remember. The implication is that if God knows all of my ways, then he knows all of my days, even the ones that haven't happened yet. And he no less controls the future than he does the present and the past. And for David, he's overwhelmed at such knowledge. He can't even comprehend it. He uses this phrase, it's too wonderful. What what a phrase that is. This is David being delightfully overwhelmed at God's loving knowledge. And then in verse 7, he starts to meditate on God's guiding presence. Let's read those verses as well. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. So if the first part shows God as the all-knowing, this shows God as the all-present. There's simply nowhere God is not. Have you ever tried running away from God? And I'm not talking about physically. Have you ever avoided reading your Bible or neglected time in prayer? Have you ever tried to suppress the conviction of the Holy Spirit or neglect fellowship with the church community or even ditch out on your small group because you're afraid of that accountability question? Well, Jonah thought he could flee from God in his downward spiral, but God showed him that it was quite a vain endeavor because you can't hide from God physically or even spiritually because he's omnipresent. What's interesting about Scripture is that it consistently shows that those who are hostile to God, for those who are against him, or even those that are in a season of running away from him spiritually, God's presence is quite a scary thing. Thing. Psalm 9:3 says God's enemies stumble and perish before his presence. And you remember uh, when Adam and Eve hear God's presence uh, coming to them after the fall, what normally would have been this really comforting experience turned into a terror. They felt shame in their sin, and so God's presence wasn't comforting at all. And they were afraid. So they hid. But, of course, God found them. And in contrast, David here in Psalm 139 is consoled that wherever he goes, God is sure to go with him, before him, and behind him. He says, if I go north, south, east, west, up to the heavens, down to the dead, if I try to take the cover by night, not only is God there, but his right hand is leading him. And it's holding him. So for David, this actually isn't about fleeing or hiding at all. It's about knowing that God is with him, which is a great comfort. For those who trust in God, for those who take refuge in him, for those who love him, God's presence is certainly intimidating, but it's ultimately comforting. God's presence is David's security kind of like Moses in Exodus 33, where he says, God, if your presence won't go with us, then do not bring us up from here. Then starting at verse 13, we take another shift. uh, David continues to meditate, but here in this third section of the psalm, he shows God as the all creative. There's simply nothing about him that God hasn't created. This third section reflects on the astounding truth that if God... That the guy knows everything about us and he's present with us precisely because he made us. And he's not casual or distant about this at all. The psalm of worship takes it to another level. If you look at verse 13 For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Do you sense the care Do you sense the intimacy of being formed and knitted and made and intricately woven? And David does. He gets it very well to the core of his soul. He says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. He knows that our God isn't a distant suit in an ivory tower, but that our God is a very hands-on God, and you can sense this wonder that such a great God, as he's been meditating on his character, such a great God would take the care to craft each one of us. If you just think about this, the hands that made the universe, the mountains, the valleys, the seas, and all that is within them, took special and gentle and tender, intimate care to craft every single inch of you. But not just that. Not just creating you, but creating your days. God has mapped out every one of our days to declare the end from the beginning and to exercise his divine sovereignty for his glory and for our good, which is absolutely amazing. We can hardly comprehend it. Are you gripped in wonder of God? As we've seen, David's not just praising God in the abstract. He's praising him for his character as it relates to himself, to David, which is actually a pretty common theme in the Psalms as they reflect on the character of God, but as they also see God's character manifested in his works. And so, yes, of course, we're called to praise God for who he is. If God never did anything for us, he would still be infinitely worthy. But the thing that is too wonderful about all of this is that God graciously includes us in his plan. God knows everything about you. Wherever you go, he is with you. Why? Because he made you and he mapped out every single one of your days before you were even born. I want to look at verse 16 one more time. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, When as yet, there were none of them. How often do we get worried or anxious or even fixated on days that haven't come yet? Will we get into the right college? Will we find the right spouse? Will we have enough money at the end of the month to pay all of our bills? Will we catch the coronavirus? Will our children faithfully walk with God? Will God ever give us children at all? Planning isn't the problem. Planning and preparing and dreaming and hoping and praying and being wise, those are all good things. But we can't hold these things, our plans, so tightly gripped in our hands that we begin to worry endlessly about when things don't go our way. Psalm 139 here is a call To take comfort that God and his sovereignty has formed every one of our days long ago. And this word formed here, it's it's really interesting. It's—it's Again, it's not this distant thing. It's an intimate thing. It's intentional. It's creative. It could be translated as fashioned. So believer, may we trust that God has fashioned all of our days. And then there's a crescendo in the psalm here in verse 17 and 18. That is the height of David's wonder and delight. He is in full-blown worship mode. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. That any of God's thoughts at all would be directed at David totally blows his mind. They are precious to him, and they're more numerous than the thoughts that he has for himself. It's as if he's saying, how could a God so great care for me so intimately? Christian, do you ever think that God doesn't love you? Do you ever think you're worthless? Do you ever think that you're a mistake? Well, come to Psalm 139 and compare God's thoughts for you. God's thoughts for you are love. When we reach this point, we're going to take just a quick break. We're going to stop and we're going to recap three ways to apply this passage to our own lives. And uh, it's a similar call. It's a similar application. It's in your outline. It's uh, taking comfort in these things about God. So the first one is just to take comfort in God's loving knowledge. If you're a believer in Christ, God has set his love on you before the foundation of the world. He knows everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the absolutely wicked. And yet in Christ, he loves you. And so may Psalm 139 lead you to a place of humility at God's unsearchable knowledge and yet confidence in his all-encompassing love for you in Christ. The second one is to take comfort not just in God's loving knowledge, but also in his guiding presence. God is with you wherever you go, and that is great news because not only is he there, but he's faithfully guiding you. Do you ever feel lost Call out to the Lord. Look for his guiding hand because it's there even if it's hard to see. But remember that one of the most tangible ways he guides you is by his word. This word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we must take it up and receive God's guidance for us. So may Psalm 139 lead you to a place of humility at God's infinite existence and yet confidence at his purposeful guidance. And thirdly, we take comfort in God's creative care. Your days are numbered, and again, that's actually really great news, because not only did God physically create you with value, dignity, and worth, but he's also mapped out for you every one of your days according to his perfect will. So that means he's not surprised. He's not surprised by the recent diagnosis that you have. He's not surprised by COVID-19. He's not surprised by the loss of a job. He's not surprised about anything because he's actually working all things for your good. And in God's vision, the journey is a part of his plan. And so may Psalm 139 lead you to a place of humility at God's sovereign control, and yet confidence in his good purposes now at verse 19 maybe you felt it maybe you heard it it's almost like there's this record scratch that goes on I read it earlier maybe it's one of those things where you've heard this psalm so many times and you've just basked in the glory of meditating on who God is and who you are but then your ears perk up a little bit at verse 19 it says oh that you would slay the wicked oh God and you say wait a second I did not know that was in Psalm 139, and if you notice in the first verse, or it's kind of the title of the psalm, it says, To the Choir Master. Uh, For as many choir masters and musicians that I've heard put this to music recently, I've actually never come across one that includes these verses in the song. Maybe you've heard it, there's some scripture songs that do, but kind of just the more poetic psalms, they never include this. when you hit verse 19, maybe you're tempted to skip this section. I know that I've been guilty of just casually breezing through these four verses. But David didn't make a mistake. You've got to remember that all Scripture is God's Word. And it's useful, and it has a purpose. So we're not going to skip it. So let's read verses 19 to 22 and see how it all fits in. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And so somewhat unexpectedly, at least at first... This worshipful meditation seems to be interrupted by a violent expression of hatred. But when we look at it closer, we'll see how it fits in. It fits in because there's this blasphemous response of the wicked that is a stark contrast to David's worshipful response at God's character. After praising God, David says, Look, all these things, God, that I've just praised you for... These people, they don't recognize it. They don't worship you for it, but I do. And Carrara, honestly, when we read things like slaying the wicked, it makes us a bit uncomfortable, which is why I don't think they put it to the music that they make for the psalm these days. I mean, isn't, isn't anger, isn't hatred sin? But this isn't vengeful spite. This isn't a fit of rage. What we see here in these verses is zealous justice. It's zealous justice. David is so overwhelmed by God's love and love for God as he considers who God is and what he's done that people that don't recognize him as the all-knowing, all-present, all-creative God, they don't recognize him that. To, To not recognize that just doesn't calculate for David. God is so great that just us being created by the Creator, we owe him worship. And a great God and a good God must be a just God, which means that the wicked that don't worship him must receive the due penalty for their sin. So we can't skip over these verses. And here's another thing we can't skip over these verses not only because they are in God's Word, which would be reason enough. But if we skip these verses, then we skip talking about the wrath of God, and we diminish the wrath of God. When we diminish the wrath of God, we diminish the cross of Christ to pay for the wrath of God on our behalf, to receive, redeem sinners from the wrath of God. And so to help make, maybe make this, this part of the psalm make sense in our minds, consider this. David is elsewhere called a man after God's own heart. Have you ever thought about what that means? I think that Psalm 139 is actually a great example of this played out. You could say that sanctification includes even our hearts becoming more aligned with God and his heart. To love what he loves, but not only that, but to hate what he hates. Which is to hate sin and in a God-honoring way to hate his enemies... If God is the definition of all that's good, then everything that stands against him is evil. And David gives his reasons for this zealous justice, this zealous anger, this zealous hatred. Note that is not directed towards any selfish motive, but it's because they speak against God with malicious intent. God's enemies take God's name in vain. I recently heard of a pastor friend of mine talking about Christians processing and engaging with the world and the culture around us, how Christians are, of course, to be loving and patient and gentle. We shouldn't be known for people that are, that are angry or impatient, but when there are real things in our world to get angry about, if our hearts are aligned to God's heart then we should actually be angry about them. We should be angry about babies being murdered in the womb. We should be angry about racism and about assaults on the image bearers of God. We should be angry about injustice of all kinds, about angry at however sin manifests itself in our world. If, we're, if our hearts are aligned with God's, then those things should anger us they are attacks on the image of God itself and on God's character and on God's works and often God does lead us to take action now to bring righteousness to bear but in all of it we're called to be angry without sin and to trust God's steady and sovereign plan to unfold so maybe, maybe you're sitting there now and you're thinking, okay, so how do I know if my anger is legit? How do I know if my anger is righteous anger or if I'm being carried away by sinful anger? I think one of the best questions to ask ourselves goes something like this. It says, am I angry about this thing because it offends me? Or am I angry about this thing Because it offends God. It's true that often, when it offends God, it also offends His people. But in our fallen world, so often, we get angry at things that break our law. Things that offend us and not God's law. Something that just doesn't go the way we think it should. And even though we can't really find any biblical support for us, we're just angered by it. If this is the case, then... This is likely where we're the ones that need to change. And here in Psalm 139, David anchors his anger in God's honor, not his own. David's not flying off the handle. He's not trying to take control in his own hands. He's taking the knowledge of God to its logical end. He knows that in the end, the righteous, those who stand with God will flourish but those who stand against god will perish and that's ultimately up to god and his justice and his vengeance and we we need to be extremely clear on which side we stand do we stand with god or with his enemies for david there's no question Even still, as we hate what God hates and we love what God loves, the Old and the New Testaments clearly call us to love our enemies so far as it depends on us and to pray for them. There's no one too far for the mercy of God to reach. If you think about David's life, you think about even how patient he was with as Saul pursued to kill him. David didn't take the wrath of God into his own own hands, but he trusted the steady plan of God to unfold. And as we see here, the stark truth of Scripture is that God indeed does have enemies in the spiritual realm and on earth, enemies that stand against him. They don't worship him. They they don't bow down to him. They don't obey him, and what's even worse is that they lead others astray. But thankfully, those who approach God humbly and reverently and worship him We're recipients of the bottomless well of mercy. So what David's trying to do, I think, here in Psalm 139, is to lead God's people in a comforting reminder of our great, all-knowing, all-present Creator God who cares for his people with love and purpose. And God's enemies, who do not worship him for all those things, they're going to have to account for that before God one day. So this psalm is a, is a psalm of comfort to those who worship God, but a psalm of great fear and trembling for those who don't. And so finally, this psalm concludes with the verses we read earlier. It concludes with a humble submission and, and petition for God. He's echoing, David's echoing God's knowledge in verse 1, and he closes with these two very memorable verses that, that many of us could recite. He humbly invites God to probe his heart and to change him, to continually conform his heart to God's, to help him love what he loves, to help him hate what he hates. So I'm going to read verses 23 and 24 one more time here. And this is his closing humble submission, a surrender, if you will. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. After this overwhelming meditation on God's character, he throws himself on God's mercy. He says, I don't want to be your enemy. Look at my heart. Refine me. Get rid of all my sin. Don't let me follow my own ways, but lead me in your way. This is humility and confidence combined. It's the humility to surrender, the humility to invite the great physician to do surgery on our hearts, to expose where we're veering off course, and then trusting confidently in God to steer us into the path of righteousness. What a prayer this is to pray before communion. Before we go to the table today, It's a prayer for all of us to pray. If you're a Christian, maybe there's some real heart work that needs to go on before approaching the table rightly. If you're not a Christian, maybe you want to pray this prayer just to see if this whole thing is even real. Test God in this. Pray this prayer. Try it out and see what God does. And so I hope you've seen how Psalm 139 is a rich mine for God's people to come back to again and again. And I've tried to show you in its own context in the life of David as the songbook of Israel just how rich it is. But how much more rich is it for new covenant followers of Christ? Maybe you've already been making these connections in your head, but as we read this psalm and we dwell on God's character, we can't help... But to see echoes of the person and the work of Christ in all of this. Christ is the one that reveals the Father. And so when you think about God's knowledge, the first part that we saw, remember, David's reflection of God's knowledge isn't primarily just about, it is about this, but it's not just about the brute fact that God knows all things. What he's meditating on is that God knows him, he knows his children in a loving, in a relational way, he knows his children for their good. And in John chapter 10, John chapter ten, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I and the Father are one. So the ultimate expression of God's knowledge, of God knowing us, is seen in Christ, our good shepherd who knows us. And so with David, we rejoice and we say, O oh Lord, in Christ you have searched me and you know me. But in addition to his knowledge, consider God's presence. We're known in Christ because in Christ, God's presence has come to us. When we think about God's presence, we're reminded that in Isaiah 9, he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's Christ. You could summarize much of God's eternal plan with this simple, but not really so simple plan of God to dwell with his people. And in Christ, he sent his Son to walk with us. He sent his Spirit to dwell in us. And one day, as we look to Revelation 21, 3, he promises that because of Christ, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And so the ultimate expression of God being with us, the ultimate expression of his presence is seen in Christ. And so again, we rejoice with David and we say, Oh Lord, in Christ, wherever I go, you are with me and you are guiding me. And then the third point, his creative care, his creativity. We reflect on the sovereign creativity of our God who crafted us with loving hands and he formed every day of ours before any of them took place Yet again, we see Jesus. John 1, verses 1 to 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things were made through Him, which is Christ. So through Christ, we're told that all things were made, all creation, and yet Scripture takes it one step further in the book of Ephesians. In Christ, all believers are recreated, remade. Ephesians 2:10, maybe you know this one well. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This whole passage in Ephesians 2 is talking about our recreation in Christ, our regeneration, our salvation. And make no mistake, as, infant, as intimately as David reflects on God's initial forming and in his crafting of us, salvation in Christ is the full expression of God's love, of God carefully creating us in the womb, but also recreating us in the image of Christ. And he's day by day conforming us into his image. And so, again, a third time, we rejoice with David and we say, Oh Lord, in Christ I am fearfully and wonderfully made so we rejoice but God's enemies they don't rejoice because the sober truth is that also in Christ he will execute the ultimate judgment Christ will slay the wicked Christ crushes the head of the serpent. Christ tramples his enemies underfoot. Christ defeats sin and death. And so here at the final point of application is the contrast of the wicked and the righteous. And the question for us is which way will you follow? If you're not a follower of Christ today, this you know, the first part of the psalm might, might sound um, might sound nice and uh, it might sound like a blessing to just dwell on God who, who created you, of course. But, but you should be alarmed that God will pour out his wrath on his enemies. And you should follow David's lead, the psalmist's lead here in this, in this passage to guide you in the way of righteousness. And that way of righteousness is through Christ. But if you are a Christian, there's two things here. Take humble refuge and confidence in Christ that you may be found having a righteousness that is not your own, but one that is received by faith in Christ. And take sober consolation that God has poured out his wrath that you deserve for your sin. He has poured it out on Christ. And so, walking away with Psalm 139, let us not walk in the way of the wicked, but let us worship this all-knowing, this all-present, this all-creator God. And along with David here in this psalm, let us pray for God to lead you in the way. And the way is Christ. As we're told in John 14, 6, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Because in Christ, we who were once God's enemies are enemies no longer. We are his friends. And even more than that, we are his children whom he loves and has redeemed in Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, in Christ you have searched us and you know us. In Christ you have created us, and you have recreated us in Christ and by His Spirit you are with us wherever we go. Lord, we align ourselves with David and we worship you for your character and for your care for us. Lord, may we not be found aligning ourselves with the wicked, but would you lead us by your Spirit to lead us in the path of righteousness. Lord, for all of us here, may we be incredibly humbled by what we read, incredibly humbled by who you are and how magnificent and great you are. And yet, Lord, for all those who take refuge in Christ, may we be incredibly confident and bold that we can come before your presence with thanksgiving. We can come before your presence because your mercy is so abundant and your grace is overwhelming. Lord, would you lead us to respond the way David does, with worship and obedience. Lord, we thank you for your word. Would your spirit continue to do work on our hearts throughout this week? We pray all this in the name of Jesus.